Internationally renowned bassist and Mac Avenue recording artist Rodney Whitaker currently holds the titles of Professor of Jazz Bass, Distinguished Professor actually, of Jazz Bass and Director of Jazz Studies at Michigan State University, where he has built one of the leading jazz degree programs and performing faculty in the United States of America. He is considered one of the leading performers and teachers of the jazz double bass in the United States. He is also the Artistic Director of the Michigan State University Professors of Jazz, former Artistic Director of Jazz at Wharton Center, Director of Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Civic Jazz Orchestra, and a member of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Rodney Whitaker received his first national recognition performing with the Harrison Blanchard Quintet. Building on his Detroit roots and enormous talent, Whitaker went on to earn an international reputation as one of the world's leading jazz double bass performers. He completed seven-year tenure as bassist with Wynton Marsalis' Septet and the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. He has toured the world over the last 25 years, collaborating and performing with legendary jazz artists, as well as performing with leading symphony orchestras worldwide. Whitaker also toured internationally as a feature performer with the Roy Hargrove Quintet. In addition, he has appeared and presented masterclasses at the International Association of Jazz Educators Conferences. Proven and committed jazz educator, Whitaker has presented numerous masterclasses across the nation at locations such as Duke University, Howard University, University of Iowa, University of Michigan, the New School, Lincoln Center, and the Detroit International Jazz Festival. In addition, he is a consultant with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in the development of the Jazz Education Department and has served on the faculties of the University of Michigan and Juilliard Institute of Jazz. Now based in East Lansing, Whitaker continues to serve many of the talented students in the state of Michigan. His legacy of teaching promises to be distinguished with former students currently performing with jazz greats such as Wynton Marsalis, Diane Reeves, Pat Metheny, the Count Basie Orchestra, and Stefan Harris. To learn more about Professor Whitaker, to view his discography and get in touch with him, be sure to visit his website, rodneywhitaker.com, as well as find him on Facebook handles and Instagram, which are on the screen. Welcome, Professor. How are you doing? Good, Gina. Great to be here, Gina and Chris, I should say. <laughs> Thank you, thank you so much for coming on and giving us some of your time today. We're, we have been really thinking about this a lot, and we're just very honored, honestly, to have you here talking with us today. So, Thank you, thank you. I'm so proud of the work that you all are doing. It's amazing. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. What have you been up to this quarantine? I started off, I was still teaching school every day, and so I, I was still teaching lessons, doing studio class, jazz styles and analysis class and administrative work for both jazz studies and diversity and inclusion. So it's a busy time, lots of meeting. And then it sort of, after about two weeks, it morphed into also me spending a, lo a little bit of time talking to other folks during the pandemic and encouraging folks to read books and to keep themselves busy. It turned into that. So that's, you know, I'm always, since I've played music as a teenager, I've always provided mentorship for people and people have done that for me. So I end up doing that a lot, spending time with my family. We started reading a book called Purpose Driven Life Together. So we read a chapter for 40 days every day. And I'm reading lots of books. I'm in the room that I generally read in and I'll show you what I'm reading. 
So I have a good friend named Max Colley who's, who gives the best presents. I don't know if you all know Max. Hey, Max, he's on the stream now. Yeah. So he gave me this book. He gave me this Downbeat magazine. So I had time to actually read it, which features Max Roach and Abby Lincoln. And I'm re he gave me this one. I think he gave me this one. It's the base edition from March 9th, which is my son Langston's birthday, 1967. So this was a year before I was born. This was published with Ray Brown on the cover, Charlie Hayden, Chris White at the top, and Jimmy Garrison. So tons of books, uh, reading Jazz from Detroit, again, by uh, Mark Stryker, my good friend who wrote a book on Detroit. Let's see what else I'm reading. I'm reading the book that uh, my dean at MSU gave me, Jim Forger. It's called Democracy in Black. It's a great read. I'm always trying to figure out a way how to communicate jazz to non-musicians because, you know, most of us, we sort of are in the know, but I found this book, The Insider's Guide to Understanding Jazz and Listening to Jazz. And so this has been a great guide to sort of equip me with language where if I'm talking to someone that doesn't really know much about music, I have the tools to sort of communicate with them about the music and the way they understand. So I'm always searching. I maybe share six things that I'm reading. I'm reading other stuff too. I'm also reading Nurtured by Love by Mr. Suzuki from Japan that invented the Suzuki method. So I got a lot of, I feel like I'm in school. So it's a great, <laughs> great time. That aspect of the pandemic has been great. But, you know, it's a sad time because so many people have died that I know personally. My mother actually had contracted the virus, ended up on the ventilator, and she made it back off the ventilator. So, But it's a rough time. And not to mention the, the unrest that's happening in our country right now. I've said a mouthful. You're very passionate about education. You've been so ever since I've known you. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the origins of the music, like even starting with just the origins of the word jazz. Many people struggle with that word, calling the music jazz, because the origins of it really comes from a negative past. So the first time that it was actually seen in print was 1917 in uh, San Francisco, and it was written J-A-S-S. And so it was assumed that it was sort of cold for, you know, a sexual term hiding the fact that people are going to the brothel. Well, and this was the music that they heard in the brothel. But I think over time, jazz musicians embraced the term, you know, and turned it into a positive word. As you all know, you are students of history and jazz. You know that it struggled with itself because people were really against the music because it was from, it is from the African-American tradition. And some folks were afraid that this music would overtake European classical music. And so they sponsored all sorts of studies which said that the music will drive you crazy, that it'll kill your plants, and all sorts of foolishness. And, but, but what people did realize that the music had a power to liberate people. And this was the music and the muse of the women's suffrage movement. This was the music they were listening to at that time in the 1920s, and it represented freedom, freedom of expression, sexual freedom, all sorts of freedoms came with that music. And just liberation, it's always been a, akin to liberation and freedom. So we sort of embraced that word, but I played with artists, uh, like for example, I toured the one summer to Europe with Youssef Latif, and he wouldn't play at any festival that had the banner jazz, because he associated the word with slavery and negativity. And so words have power. So I get, I get that. 
the, the challenge is that jazz is a commercial term, and if you draw that line in the sand, you might not have any gig because most of the places we play are jazz clubs, jazz festivals, jazz venues, jazz series. So although the word has a negative connotation to some, it is how we identify the music. And it's important to realize that jazz is a diaspora all to itself. You know, there's a community of people in France that play jazz, in Brazil, all over the world. Everywhere you go on the planet, there are people playing jazz. And they're planted because it's about liberty and freedom. When we do the tours with the Dr. Phillips Center, you've dedicated an entire week of the education of students, and we talk about civil rights. And this isn't yeah. something that's always taught when it comes to jazz education or even education in general. Can you talk to us about why you do it, why you're so passionate about sharing that with our kids? It's interesting, like, we've really had jazz education since about 1958. Some of the first schools were. University of North Texas and David Baker at Indiana University and places like that. And so jazz has had this history. But one of the things that's really had happened is that jazz education has sort of separated itself from African-American culture and made the values and the purpose of the music not a part of the education, if that makes sense. And so, so many jazz players even have this background of playing jazz music out of the African-American tradition, yet try to erase that part of it. So you can't talk about jazz without talking about civil rights. One of the things I always like to point out is Dr. King's favorite music was jazz. One of his best friends was Dr. Billy Taylor. The music that was his music, his hero was Duke Elliott. So that was the music of his culture and his community. And you can't talk about American history and not talk about civil rights. The two go together. It's a part of the history and part of the struggle of America. But oftentimes I find, because we have this duality of cultures, we have American history, which excludes Africans, descendant, and we have American history, which is typically like white history in America. And it's a challenge because the contributions of the African Americans get ignored in the books. Like I, sometimes in my class, I talk to the students about African American inventors as a subject because a lot of times people don't know that there were inventors that were african-american for example you ever heard this saying called the real mccoy a real mccoy is a statement that comes from an inventor who is african-american named uh, elijah mccoy and he has probably some most pat more patents than almost any inventor in history george washington carver who made all the inventions like peanut oil peanut butter. I mean, I could keep going. His thing was the usage of how can we use the peanut to further humanity. But I can keep going with inventors. Like Edison Laboratories had an African-American inventor. And a lot of the inventions that came from that lab were by this inventor who works for Edison Laboratories. I was a student in school in the 70s and the early 80s. And growing up in Black Pride, Black teachers made sure we knew our history because that's the thing that we had to hold on to. And I realized that one of my missions in life is to make sure this history doesn't get lost and people know it and they understand it and they have a greater appreciation for African-American contribution. I actually grew up in a very suburban sort of white culture. And so I'm curious if there's any other essential things that you think are left out in terms of black history in American education for, for students in grade school. 
Well, I think, I think you know, a lot of AP students learn about this because when I talk to uh, students that come out of AP programs, did you do AP history in high school? I did not. So I, I find that when I talk to AP students, they're aware of this, but there's a term called redlining. Have you ever heard of that term called redlining? Well, there's a dispute among historians about when was the first use of redlining. And so the thing to think about is the GI Bill is really how I learned about redlining. And the GI Bill, redlining is a couple of different stories and I to try to make it brief. But with redlining in the GI Bill, so the GI Bill guarantee, guarantees you education if you're a veteran, and it also guarantees you a guaranteed housing law. And so the, the Southern senators at that time had a problem with that because part of the control of the South was slavery didn't end in 1865. It ended 100 years after that, in 1965, with the right, Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65. One of the things to think about with this is that if you were in the South, you couldn't get a housing loan, you didn't have economics, sort of like the generational wealth didn't exist in the South or the North, for that matter. It was a little bit better in the North, but not much. And so what they did is the senators, the compromise was to say that if you have one black family in your community, you get a D rating. And if you have a D rating, below a C rating, you can't get a loan. So subsequently, none of the black veterans could get a loan. But then now that makes people that may not be racist not wanting black folks to live next door to them because they don't want a D rating because the single biggest investment most families have is their home. And so this also encouraged more racism in the North, which is already racism in the North. We have to face that in places out West in the North. And so we had to challenge those things. And then the, the other part of it is that part of the history is the whole notion of white as an American invention. Because remember, this is a nation where people came to from all over the world because they were oppressed and they weren't free. And the word white is synonymous with freedom, in America especially. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that we have to re-educate ourselves on. And also, too, a lot of the things within our culture historically, because I learned history different, people who are like, look, no, read this. Because there's a lot of things that we learn that are myths that's not true. Like Columbus never set foot on North America. I have a question kind of going with the theme of what you're talking about with redlining. This is something we've talked about in Orlando before when you're talking about how difficult it is to get out of a bad situation when the system is built kind of to oppress you, which is the same thing, the redlining situation, where it's built around like these really old values that we had before. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? There's a lot of economics built around poverty. I'll give you an example to think about. When I lived in Detroit, my beloved town that I love more than any place in the universe, it cost me more money to live in Detroit than it did in East Lansing because my insurance rates were higher, my utility costs were higher. At that time, I had two new cars. I was paying $8,000 a year in car insurance, and it went down to $2,000 a year. My utilities, in the winter, I would have heat bills of five, $600 and a brick house that was better insulated than the house I'm living in now. And my heat bill went down to $300 a month. 
so it actually cost more money to live in a impoverished community. My credit score was lower because I lived in a impoverished community. It cost money to be poor. And there's economics ties, and there's control. There's a whole lot of things. I take my family, for example. My father lived in the South. He moved to the North for better opportunity. They had some serious challenges where, where we were from. My family comes from Albany, Georgia, which was one of the hardest-fought places of the Civil Rights Movement. And he left there to come to Detroit. I'm kind of sidetracking, but I, I think I'm going to try to – let me try to answer your question better. So the thing that you have to think about is that if you grow up in, in poverty and oppression, generally you don't, you don't have the tax dollars to support the schools. And per capita, suburban areas get more money for education. Money makes a difference. If you don't have new books, up-to-date books, resources in the school, and just access to a good education, I mean, the key to getting out of poverty is education. Without ed- education, it makes it very difficult. And for so many centuries and centuries and centuries, my people, so to speak, was denied the right to quality education. Even after Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, things haven't really improved that much for a lot of people in a lot of communities. I was fortunate that I had really dedicated teachers, not to say there are not none now, but we also grew up with old school values where the community was your auntie and your uncle, and you are accountable to everyone. And so the system is a little bit different now. And it's a challenge. And it, how you break the cycle of poverty is through education. And that's where we spend the least amount of money. And we see it, education, we see it in the disparity of the fact that folks didn't have the Internet. That's an educational issue. The Internet should be free for everybody because the Internet is where all the information is. So imagine if you lived in a household that didn't have internet, what your life would be like. And imagine if you live in a household that doesn't have medical insurance. As we've seen with COVID-19, it ravaged our community, primarily because people don't have access to quality health care. And then also the thing to think about is there's such a distrust of medical professionals within our community because of the history that we endure. Speaking of sort of education and uh, opportunity, do you think that playing jazz music gave you opportunities you probably would not have gotten otherwise? Oh, certainly. I mean, for me, it was the ticket to me having a life. I mean, I got scholarships to music camp and college and everything through playing jazz music. It opened up a world of learning as well because and mentorship. I had great mentors growing up who really said to me, read this book, you know, and we have, want you to be this kind of person or this type of person. And it's through jazz. I started listening to jazz at 13 years old. But what came along with that is just, you know, reading liner notes and trying to understand geography and wanting to know the who, where, what, where, where the musicians were from and what, what high schools they went through to. Like you can almost mention almost any jazz musician that I can tell you the city they're from because I read about them and I wanted to know how come there are so many great players from Indianapolis? You know, what, what, why is that? Why are you know, I know who I'm talking about. There's tons of great players from that town, or Pittsburgh, or Philadelphia. And I always wanted to know, so that opened up a whole world of literacy. And I wasn't a good student before I played jazz. Jazz gave me a greater sense of history, the world, and wanting to really 
be able to explain and articulate because I wanted to be able to share all these things with my friends. I have a friend named Curtis who was my best friend growing up. He had to listen to jazz. He had to endure my jazz. He was my first jazz styles and analysis student. <laughs> and he's not a musician, but he likes jazz to this day and, uh, because of I was always preaching the jet. But Kurt, I just would like to say, Curtis and I used to do our homework together every day. And before I started playing jazz, I actually was a violinist. Curtis turned me on to wanting to play Bach because he bought me from a Time Life uh, collection of Isaac Stern playing the Bach double violin concerto. So that's, he's the best friend. He was him. He wanted me to know, and he wasn't a musician. So you started off playing violin. What moved you to jazz and bass specifically? I had a teacher in middle school named Hosea Taylor, who was a woodwind player and a pianist. And Hosea Taylor looked at me one day at the beginning of eighth grade and said, you know, I'm going to put you on bass. And he said to me, one day you're going to make a lot of money and you're going to travel all around the world. And I didn't have any money. and I've never been around the world. And that sounded pretty good. So he sold me on a vision that day. He was right. I, I, I still haven't made all the money. I'm still working on that. That's why I nicknamed myself Big Money, you know. The idea of traveling the world and seeing the world. And the same day that I started playing bass, one of my neighbors, Charles Brown, hit me to this bass player, two bass players from Detroit. One was named Ron Carter and the other one was Paul Chambers. And for me, that was it. I decided at 13 that I was going to be Paul Chambers. So you're talking about this book about how to talk to jazz with people who don't play jazz. Could you give us some tips from the book that you've learned so far? Well, one of the things I got from the book is just teaching people to understand form. You know, we know the forms, but really getting them to sort of understand forms and talk about AABA form. And all of those things exist in literature as well. Like a blues is 12-bar form, but as a literary form, it's AAB because the two first sections repeat and then the thing develops and in the B section, the turnaround, which we call it, right? So that's one way you can get people to understand is by referencing something they know. Also let them know in the beginning, like if they're trying to follow a solo, most of the time people stop listening because they can't hear the melody anymore. But getting them to practice where they listen to an extended solo and then really try to keep singing the melody in their head and once they sort of understand that and that was a problem when I first started listening I, I let, fell in love with the sound but sometimes I would get lost and the more complicated the soloist was I would like zone out from it like if I listened to Louis Armstrong who played pretty complex stuff but he stayed really like around the melody you could always hear the melody in what he played when I would listen to Charlie Parker it would blow my mind or John Coltrane I would just never know what they were doing because of the rhythmic things. Thelonious Monk, ironically, was easy, very easy to follow for me as a kid. And I love the humor in his play. And there's a, a thing in this book that talks about Monk. And children love Monk's music because it's playful, it's quirky, it's childlike, it's beautiful. Also trying to find things in the music that we like that people can get to early because oftentimes we... We start off so complicated that they don't understand what we're doing musically. Do you think that knowing the history changes how you listen to the music? It certainly does, knowing the history, because when I was young, I didn't understand the history of black people as much as I did by the time I was in my 20s. 
growing up, I didn't listen to Louis Armstrong because, you know, in history, it was in the 60s, they painted him as the Uncle Tom. So I sort of like had that viewpoint because he smiled all the time. And I was taught that you're not, you don't have to smile for white folks all the time to make them comfortable. So I, I kind of like looked at him in a negative way. And I looked at a lot early, like even Duke Ellington, because the way it, it was always used or presented was all, by Hollywood was always like cavalier. And they didn't really take jazz. Jazz was always something playful. And they didn't really present it in a good light. So I had that kind of image about jazz until I started studying history and understanding the history of the music. Then that changed my impression of the music. When I really started learning about Ellington, like I didn't know that he wrote civil rights music in the 40s. I didn't know about Billie Holiday. I did, there's a lot of things that happened uh, or how heavy someone like Jelly Roll Mort was in terms of his intellect about explaining music. I had no idea. But I also didn't know about the Harlem Renaissance until I, well, in high school I learned about that. But that sort of started to change my viewpoint. And I had, I was fortunate enough that I had a lot of history teachers and folks. So we learned history and writing. So in terms of writing class, it may be focused on the Harlem Renaissance, where I learned about Conti Cullen and Richard Wright and Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and people like Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson, Cab Calloway at the same time. And so that sort of like began to change the way I looked at the music and I looked at the culture and I began to understand more. Sort of transitioning, I remember one time you were talking to a lot of the students about a track that we have today called The Real Ambassadors. And I had heard that track, but I didn't understand exactly what the context and the reasoning for the creation of the track until we, you were actually talking about, I think it was at the Big Band Symposium. And I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about that track, because for me, it really opened my eyes up to the connection with the history of the music. In 1955, really it began in 54. 1954, Adam Clayton Powell, who was a congressman from New York City representing Harlem, uh, was married to Hazel Scott, the great jazz pianist and vocalist from Los Angeles. At this time, there's the Cold War happening between the United States and Soviet Union, but also there's a, a war, war of culture where folks are beginning to send their ballet and uh, their orchestras and things like that around the world to win the hearts of, of people that they want to have their ideology. And so there was a conference in Padang, Indonesia, where Adam Clayton Powell attended, and America was kind of staying away from it because this was former colonial places that were ruled by England and France and Belgium, so mostly Asian and African nations and folks from the Caribbean get, get together to sort of determine their fate whether they're going to be socialist, capitalist. And uh, so America stayed away from this conference, but Adam Clayton Powell attended. And while at the conference, he heard, he saw the Bolshevik ballet. And he said, wow, they're amazing. And at that time, we couldn't compare to that. We had New York City Ballet, which is now one of the top in the world. So he said, man, you know what we should do? We should use the jazz musicians to travel around the world and represent the U.S. State Department. And so for the musicians, they were very much interested in it because, of course, number one, it's a gig, and it paid well. Number two is they get to represent the United States. Also, they get to impress upon the world their freedom struggle 
and their writers. You couldn't script jazz musicians. You couldn't tell them who to hang out with. And you couldn't tell them how to beat. So the musicians would go to jam sessions and hang out with musicians that were communists or socialists because they were musicians. They didn't care about that. Or they would invite people to embassy parties that wasn't on the list and then threaten not to play if they didn't let their friends in. And so there's, there's all kinds of stories. And so the main musicians uh, who toured on these State Department tours was, um, the first person actually was Dizzy Gillespie. It was supposed to be Louis Armstrong. But in 57, Governor Farbus of Arkansas in Little Rock, he sent a guard and wouldn't let the black kids in the school. So Louis Armstrong refused to tour for the State Department. And so then they went to the second person on the list, which was Dizzy Gillespie. And a lot of people don't know that Armstrong made the stand in the set. He's really like the first major black star to say, hey, I'm not doing this. Y'all not treating the kids right. Y'all won't let them go to school. Y'all won't let them have an integrated education. I ain't going. But in 57, they followed him. He did a tour on his own of the Belgium Congo in West Africa, and they followed him and sort of attached on to Louis Armstrong. And there's a great book you can read about this called Satchmo Blows Up the World. It's a great book to read. Just to make a long story short, one thing to think about is the next folks was Dizzy, Dave Brubeck, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington. And those were the major folks that toured for the U.S. State Department. And the interesting thing is in 62 for the Monterey Jazz Festival, Dave Brubeck and his wife Iola wrote a piece that was a satire based on their experiences of those tours. And it's called The Real Ambassador, which featured Louis Armstrong's band, Brubeck's Quartet, Lambert Hendrix Ross Group, and the great Carmen McRae. The subjects are heavy, and it's really worth checking out. Let's take a listen now. Who's the real ambassador? It is evident we represent American society. Noted for its etiquette, its manners, and sobriety. We have followed protocol with absolute propriety. We're Yankees to the core. We're the real ambassadors. Though we may appear as bars, we are diplomats in our proper tasks. Our authority comes habitual along with all the ritual. The diplomatic corps has been analyzed and criticized by NBC and CBS. Senators and congressmen are so concerned they can't be set. State Department stands in all your coup d'etat has met success and caused this great uproar. Who's the real ambassador? Who's the real ambassador? It is evident that we represent American society. Known for its etiquette, its manners, and sobriety. We have followed protocol with absolute propriety. We act to the core. We're the real ambassadors. Though we may appear as foes, we get informed that they're proper. Hands are that becomes a bitch. We'll along with all the ritual. The diplomatic core. That's the analyzed critics of Amity and CBS. Senators and congressmen spoken to the cabinet. State process. Modern truth. I've met the sex process. Straight up wrong. Who's the real ambassador? Yeah, the real ambassador. I'm the real ambassador. It is evident I was sent by government to take your place. All I do is play the blues and meet the people face to face. I'll explain and make it plain. I represent the human race and don't pretend no more. Who's the real ambassador? Certain facts we can ignore. In my humble way, 
I'm the USA. Though I represent the government, the government don't represent some policies I'm for. Oh, we learn to be concerned about the constitutionality. In our nation, segregation isn't a legality. Soon our only differences will be in personality. That's what I stand for. Who's the real ambassador? Yes, the real ambassador. In his humble way, he's the USA. One of the things, he put this piece out, and no one really thought Dave was as radical uh, politically as he actually was. He's actually also really, in a way, offended by how he was used a lot of times. Like, one time he did a State Department tour of Asia and the Middle East, and they sent him to all the places that encircled the Soviet Union. You understand the problem with that? So they're sending a political message to Russia through using artists to do that. And then also like the treatment of how he saw people. He also was a civil rights activist even before. Eugene Wright was his bass player who was African-American. And a lot of times he was really popular on the college circuit, Rubeck was, and he wouldn't go to places where Eugene couldn't stay in the same hotel or use the front entrance and lost a lot of money a lot of times. He was the first jazz musician on the cover of Life magazine and fought to help get Duke Ellington on the cover of Life magazine. And so he was a real champion of human rights. You know, his father had him filed to fight for his whole rights for human rights. A lot of people uh, complain or argue, I don't know which is the word, that music and politics don't really mix, but this song and then a lot of the other tracks that we're talking about is a lot of protest music. Can you talk about that? Well, I, I think it's up to an artist to determine how they want to use their music. You don't have to. There's no prerequisite. And you have to be honest and true to yourself. But W.E.B. Du Bois said that all art and music is propaganda. And so in the 1920s and 30s, African Americans was given the charge to use their art to further our cause and our existence. And uh, I also think about Paul Robeson, who had told Harry Belafonte, is from Jamaica, and then do Caribbean music. He wanted to be like the next Billy Eckstein and sing jazz. He's from, he grew up in Harlem. Paul Robeson, the great orator, actor, activist, explained to him that it was important to get people to see his identity through his culture that he was born in, convince him to start doing Jamaican and Calypso folk song. There's an extra added responsibility a lot of times if you grow up in an oppressed society to use your voice, to use your platform to further humanity, get the people to see you as human. And some artists don't do that. And that's not everybody's responsibility or everyone's life issue. That's okay. 
music serves different purposes. And for the person who says that it shouldn't, Anne Rand said that. She said that music in a book called The Romantic Manifesto, she says that music is supposed to be, an art is just only supposed to be beauty. But she lived, she grew up in the majority culture, so she could afford to look at life that way. So you mentioned the other track, Fables of Fathers, and you talked about oh, Governor Fathers uh, leading into that track. Could you talk oh, yeah. a little bit about that? Yes, you know, Charles Mingus was inspired and wrote a piece. I think he wrote the piece in 58 called Fables and Fathers, recorded this first for Columbia Records in 58, released in 59, and they wouldn't allow him to use the lyrics. So they kind of censored him. So he recorded it again in 1960 for the Candy Records. And he, he recorded it for them, and they allowed him to put the lyrics on the recording. And I, it's not quite the same song without the lyrics. Yeah. yeah. And it's really like it, written as like a children's song to talk about Governor Fathers. And for anybody who doesn't know about Governor Fathers, can you talk to us a little bit about him and his history? Orville Fathers was a, a segregationist who did not, from Arkansas, who did not want blacks in the school. Remember what we talked about, the key to lifting yourselves out of poverty is education. And remember, slavery was still going on in the South in the 50s and 60s. It was just called sharecropping, you know, almost free labor in the South. One thing you got to think about is black men in a lot of places in the South couldn't leave the South without permission. So education would lift you out of it. People would sign contracts and things, but they couldn't read or write. You know, voting, they had litmus tests in the South to keep you from voting because they knew you didn't have adequate education. And even if you passed the litmus test, they would say you failed. Fables of Fathers, we have the lyrics up here, or most of the lyrics here. Oh, Lord, don't let them sit with us. Oh, Lord, don't let them stab us. Oh, Lord, don't let them tarn us.
That's ridiculous. Danny Richmond? Oh, I am so sick and ridiculous. The brainwash and teach you hate.
handful. That's ridiculous, Daddy. Why are they so sick and ridiculous, Daddy? Brainwash and teach you a. Yeah, I used to actually do my homework to this piece every day because it was so powerful. It, it actually pushed me to go on, you know, to work hard, you know, to, to hear this every day. And for me, growing up in Detroit, you know, I grew up in the segregated city. And at that time, it was the most segregated city in North America. And there was such hatred in the suburbs towards African-Americans and sometimes vice versa. It fueled me to go on. And the interesting thing is when I was a little kid, I never experienced anybody being racist towards me because the whites that I was around were generally teachers who had dedicated themselves to teaching black children. I had a teacher named Ed Quick, who was my band teacher, who's one of my favorite folks in the whole wide world. I should also say that this recording Donald Washington, who was one of my teachers in a group that I played in called Bird Train School now, where I met James Carter and I met my wife to be. We all played in this group and he had an extensive record collection and he let me borrow this. I never returned it, but he let me, he had multiple copies, but he let me borrow this LP and I just listened to it every day and uh, soak up as much Charles Mingus as I can. But that, this track was like every day. I would listen to them. And they wanted to censor the lyrics. That's not That song is not the same without the lyrics at all. Yeah, well, he mentions Rockefeller, who was the richest man in the world at that time, and Eisenhower, who was the president, and fathers, of course. He was not afraid to just call people out. It's crazy. My favorite part of the lyric is, two, four, six, eight, brainwash and teach you hate. Yeah. And that's implied that you teach hate when children are children. If you grow up in an environment that teaches love and compassion and tolerance, you grow up to be that sort of person. And if you grow up in a community that teaches hate, you get hate. I have a question in regards to uh, diversity when it comes to education in the jazz department. So as far as I've seen, your department is one of the only ones or one of the very few that has a very diverse faculty and a lot of times in jazz departments, that's not the case. Do you think it's important for Black Americans to teach Black American music? I think it's important. I hate to use the word minority, but African-American and Latino representation, because I don't see it very much at universities. But sometimes jazz culture in a university doesn't have anything to do with jazz. So I hate to say that. But I also, because I don't see any black faculty or Latino faculty. I also don't see very many black and Latino students outside of New York City. As we develop our faculty, I'm hoping to get two more positions and they definitely should be two female faculty members because you have to have windows and mirrors. If you don't see yourself in something, it's very difficult to be successful. That's an important thing that everybody should see themselves represented within a, in a faculty. For us, we look primarily for people who can teach out of a certain culture. They just happen to be, most of the folks are African-American and we have a Latino faculty member and we have one white faculty member, but he grew up in 
Detroit jazz culture. And so that's what we were looking for, people who can teach out of that tradition of bebop and harbop. It was a challenge in the beginning because some critics would say that I was being racial, which is absurd. Can you elaborate for the audience who doesn't know exactly what you mean by windows and mirrors? Well, I think that, you know, there's a theory in diversity. I, it's escaping me who came up with the theory that in order for people to really be successful at anything or any discipline. If you're a writer and you're an African-American male, and imagine if no one's ever exposed me to Langston Hughes or Richard Wright or Conti Cullen or many of the great African-American writers or Ta-Nehisi Coates. Or, I feel like I'm doing something that's not of my tradition and culture. Or if there are no women in the band or on faculty, it makes it very difficult because there's also, too, there's certain things that certain folks can articulate to each other. And then also, too, there's a compassion issue. Because sometimes I find when you're in school and you're a minority and you're explaining yourself, people tell you you're making excuses because they didn't grow up in the same lifestyle. Just like the argument that we're having right now early, that we started earlier. So we have a pandemic. Everybody has to go home. We go remote. And then the poor students come up missing and nobody knows why because they don't have the internet at home. In their community, they have to go to the library. But now the library is closed and maybe they don't own the laptop. Maybe they were using the library computer at college and didn't own a laptop. So there's little things like that that people just don't necessarily think about. I was at a jazz program once. There was this African-American kid who was really, really talented. I asked the people on faculty, why was he in the third band? And they told me he had an attitude. And so I went up and started talking to him, and he was laughing and joking with me. And they said, how did you get him to do that? I said, I'm treating him with respect. We're having a good time. Then later that evening, we had a discussion, and they were like, I've never seen the kid smile. I said, you don't realize that they're afraid to be here. They're the only black person in the program. They're afraid to be here, and you're not treating them humane. You're not talking to them in a way that you want them to be here. So there's a lot of things like that that you have to understand that without having someone that can speak to that person is sometimes a challenge because there are cultural codes and things that we just don't get because we didn't grow up in those cultures. I have a question in regards to kind of how you run the department. So the same way that we talked about mentorship between like professors and students, I've noticed mm -hmm. at Michigan State specifically, you, there's a lot of mentorship within the faculty as well. Um, oh, you're yeah. a mentor to a lot of the faculty members, and one of the professors uh, told me, Professor Rivera, when I asked him kind of a similar question, and he said that he got this from you, talking about how to deal with students, and he his response was, always treat them with dignity. Oh, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, mentorship within, like, even just the faculty in your department? Well, one of the things, too, you got to think about is the drum professor, Randy Gillespie, who's just turned 85, I think, was one of my mentors growing up. And he calls me boss, but he's really the boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he's the person that's really, really honest with us about everything. If he doesn't like something, he's going to tell you. If he doesn't think it's soulful, if it doesn't mirror jazz, he's going to tell you. He's like, yeah, I don't think we ought to do that because it's not swinging or it doesn't feel good. He's that kind of person and very honest and loving. He's uh, the grandfather to the whole program, including me. He's my uncle. Within that program, Diego was my student at one point, and I saw he was a very smart young man and really knew pedagogy well, was really interested in pedagogy, 
And so early out, he started teaching pedagogy, which made him a much better speaker and articulate his thoughts and ideas and clarity, good at arranging. And as we started to expand the program, early out, we got ATN Charles, which he had to teach arranging, and he couldn't really arrange at first. He won't tell you that. He, he could write. He was a good composer. But he learned how to arrange in like two years, and he became a stellar arranger because he had to teach that class. And he kind of complained about teaching the class at first. I was like, well, my father used to tell me, don't complain about something you got to do anyway. <laughs> and he, he figured it out. He became, he's probably one of the best arrangers in the world now. And he's always the gifted speaker and very articulate human being and amazing player and really coming out of his culture and getting us to see things about music and always great tech ideas. And Diego as well. Michael Dees, who is one of the greatest trombone players to ever live, was always like thinking about how could I be better at this and very conscientious and great teacher, teaches our beginners in improv, which is the most important jazz program. You know, at first he was a little hurt about teaching beginning improv. And I said, it's the most important job in the program is to teach the intro, getting them started and having that strong fight. And I, I think our players, because of his ability to teach improv and articulate things to them. I think he's one of the main reasons why we have such good, solid improvisers. And it was really the kind of the same thing. Not really tough love, but I would always say, don't complain. you got to teach the class. So they're in another class where you teach. So don't complain about it. And that's how my mentors were about me. And it wasn't like, you know, they were maybe harder on me than I wasn't really hard on the faculty. But sometimes like getting people to realize that you got to do this anyway. So stop complaining about it and figure it out. A lot of times also, too, I give a little bit of advice in the start and more advice in the second year because you won't really know what I'm talking about until you live through the first year. And I tell them that. I say, well, you're not going to really understand what it means. And then we also have great Randy Napoleon. He knows tons of tunes and really, like, push that in the program, getting kids to be competent on lyrics and knowing the tunes and knowing the changes to the correct changes. And of course, great David Davis, who mostly teach graduate class, which you both had his classes. And he's an amazing person, amazing pianist, and really like thoughtful and thinks about it. And then Miss Cookie, who's booking the gigs for us. It's a great faculty. It's a great place to work. And playing with them is a joy. We all, Randy Napoleon and I talk at least once a week since this started. He's like, and the first thing, man, I miss playing with you. I miss playing with the cat. When we get out of this, I won't take for granted that we have such great faculty and trying to play more as much as I can. Do you think that having faculty that you connect with this way, like not just on the stage, but in, in an emotional and spiritual level is important in a faculty department? I think it's I think it's very important. Like if you think about if you can hand pick your team, you know, that's how I look at it. And it's not my program; it's our program. And it's not my ideas; it's our ideas. I didn't come up with every idea in the program. It doesn't have to be my idea; it just has to be a good idea. And we try everything. Sometimes things don't work, and we try something different. And I think when you're a leader, you have to surround yourself with people that you think that are smarter than you. If you want to be the smartest person there's nothing to learn or nothing to gain. And so you have to have people that maybe they don't think about it the way you think about it or they see something different or they come up with an idea. Oh, let's try this. Let's look at this. How do we make this better? Every year we try to improve on things. 
but it's how we teach our classes personally. And we try to outdo each other. Everybody's always bragging it off. Man, I talked to class today, and the students were really into it, and they asked great questions. We all have those moments in those days where we get excited about teaching. And that's, for me, more than anything, I, w- I wanted to assemble a cast of folks that really love teaching. One of the struggles that we have in jazz is there's such great players out here, but not all of us value education because we have this thing about book learning versus street learning. It's all really the same thing. And people argue, I, I, I grew up in both. And it's all really the same, same thing. And the great teachers who are on the street, so to speak, possess the same thing that the great teachers are. A great teacher is a great teacher. What the institution is doesn't matter. That's something we created in our head because we were often excluded from the institution. So we vilified institutions. Whether you play in a Basie band, that's an institution. Or Betty Carter's group, that was the institution. Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. You were being in school. It's the same. But right now, you know, we don't have as many gigs as they had, and uh, we have to do it in school. With our program, we tour. Artists coming in, you get exposed to the artists and and having learned a lot of music. As you all remember, we played a lot of music in the course of the year in a short period of time. And uh, when you get out here in the real world and you play in a professional big band, you can keep up because you've been exposed to so many different styles, so many different things and different music, different folks' perspective on playing and phrasing, and you got to adapt. We tried to make it as real as possible. We actually have a question here from Alex Balaguro. I know him. <laughs> He's a music teacher at Detroit Collegiate Prep at Northwestern. And he wants to know, what do you hope to see more of with regards to jazz education? And how would you like the future of jazz education to progress? I'm so proud of Alex because he's teaching in Detroit Public School. And we need great teachers because that's my hometown and the tradition that I grew up with. People like Ernie Rogers and Ed Quick. And I mean, I can keep going on and on with the great band directors there. But I I would like to see more African-American students playing jazz and having good jazz education. Because right now, like if you look at festivals and uh, top competitions, there's no black kids. And I'd like to see there be a commitment that we have outreach for successful band programs, that they create outreach and mentorship in the black schools and share resources. That's the biggest shortcoming in jazz education now. I think a lot of the education away from jazz is starting to change. People bringing in guest artists, they're instilling mentorship and all those sort of things, but there are very few programs, maybe Dallas School of Art, Dorsey's program down in Fort Lauderdale, Dillard School of Art, there are not that many programs where there are black kids playing jazz at the highest level. I don't know where all the black kids keep coming from because there are only a few places that have that high level education, but I would like to see that. I grew up at Martin Luther King High School in Detroit. We had a award-winning program, Northwestern High School in Detroit for years and years when Ernie Rogers had a stellar program. Ron Carter in East St. Louis at Lincoln High School. There were all t- tons of prominent programs that had great players, and it seems to be a lost tradition now. So you're really passionate about teaching uh, students to be diverse and giving them as much real-world experience so that when they're playing in the band, you said that they're completely prepared. but 
learning in academia is always different than learning on the stage. Can you talk to us about the kinds of things that you do to kind of mix the two so that students are prepared when they leave? The number one thing is exposing them to guest artists, but also exposing them to various styles of jazz. And sometimes it may mean that they play music that I might not like. And sometimes we'll play like, you know, dance music and people be like, man, this is corny. But I'm like, if you're going to be a professional musician, you're going to have to play some corny music. And because it's corny, it doesn't mean it has to sound bad. Like, you can't say it's corny if you sound sad playing the music, right? I hate to use the word sad, but if you sound sad, you can't criticize the music, right? Like, play the stew out of it and then tell me it's corny. I might accept your comment, you know. But it's it's one of those things where, where you really have to expose musicians to various different styles, let them look at 21st century jazz education, where outreach is a part of it and mentorship. And we try to instill mentorship within the program that the older students are mentoring. And it's not a like competition, even though we have an audition and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't feel like a competitive environment in a negative way at all, because I see people paired together that you won't don't they're like best friends in the program and you wouldn't think they would be friends because they have some common thread or, or they got the same kind of sense of humor and you see a lot of people from various different backgrounds in our program that are best friends or roommates so it's always been that way and it's beautiful to see and as far as teaching jazz history how do you approach that in university academia I read all of the books and still, you know, finding new things to read. I've had a great example of people, again, like Donald Washington and Herbie Williams, who was one of my mentors, and Donald Walden and Kenny Cox. All those folks were great orators out of the African-American tradition. And so I just try to make sure when I'm teaching that it swings. It has to come from a certain delivery. Storytelling is a part of it. Some things in jazz are myth, and when you hear the I, sometimes I like the myth more than the real story. But storytelling is a part of it. It's part of our tradition. And I try to teach the musicians to be storytellers because being a storyteller will affect the way you improvise, the way you tell a story on the bandstand, but the way your personality. There's certain personalities in jazz. We got a few nerds too, but most, mostly personality. It takes all kinds to play jazz now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a nerd. Michael Dees tried to get me to admit that I was a nerd, but that's a whole other story. I said, I ain't no nerd. And he started laughing. <laughs> you just don't know. You're a nerd in denial. <laughs> oh, we've got another question here. So, so Steve Summers says, I teach the jazz combo class at Washtenaw Community College in Ann Arbor. How can we bring more diversity to our community-based classes? You know, I think you're in a great community. You're so in close proximity to East Lansing and close proximity to Detroit. And I think it's really important to get artists out of those communities and their cats in Ann Arbor to come into your program to do workshops if there's funding for that or write a grant to get funding because there's a lot of money that doesn't get used and partnered. You know, there's the Herb Foundation in Detroit and and Detroit Jazz Festival Foundation. So, and Wayne State is there, and uh, U of M has diverse faculty members, Robert Hurst and Dennis Wilson. So really thinking about it from that standpoint, and also Ellen Rowe is there. Also really going into the public schools. We do a lot of outreach. I'm always astonished, even in my community in middle school level, I see so many minority students playing music, and by high school they stop. And so there's tons, probably within 
the community college too in your community there are people so I would perform as much as I can on campus in the dining halls and different places so people can know and then invite students if they still play an instrument that they can play in combos I always wish at some point when I retire I want to run a program at a community college because I think I can make a huge difference in terms of because of the admissions policy I can identify talented students especially you know, minority students and give them an opportunity to develop and grow. I see the community college as the place where you can have the best jazz program. I'm curious because I know that not all students that come into any jazz program in general are going to be as open-minded or willing to listen. And your program is really committed to diversity and inclusion. How do you yeah. approach students who come in who are less loving? Maybe I'll say. We can only be who we are and give the message. And if a person don't want to hear the message, there's nothing you really can do. The Pareti rule is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And you really don't need everybody's heart. But if you got 20% of the people who are go-getters and leaders, everybody else is going to follow. Even if they disagree or they don't think that they agree, but they also don't show that to us. Right. So there's that in, in the culture. Most of the time, there's few exceptions that in order to come to a school in the audition, you have, you know, seven people. We play in the audition. So there's truth in lending. You know, if you come to Michigan State, what it's going to be culturally. And if you decide to come, we didn't lie to you. We didn't have students play in your audition. We had the faculty play. So we can hear really hear how you play and evaluate from that standpoint. We've also had students who Parents, when we're talking to them, trying to recruit them, who would say, not as much as anymore, but in the beginning, they would say, I think my kid will be more comfortable somewhere else. So, Nothing we can do about that. Do you think that having a diverse student body is helpful for the students as well? I think it is. I mean, I think that if you're going to play jazz, you know, we have issues of diversity. You know, we don't have as many women playing jazz as we should be. It's changing or maybe not as quick as it should. Sometimes you see a band in New York that's all white people or all black people. Those are real issues. The only way the world is going to change is if we build an environment that encourages diversity of all kinds and acceptance of all people. And over time, it will change. So we have another calling question from Alan Memo Padilla, and he's from Costa Rica. He says, how can we as a Latino country be better at teaching jazz, uh, black American music specifically in jazz and uh, not thinking about it as scales and theory. He says, it feels like a lot of teachers around here don't have or create the awareness of jazz being rooted in black American music. Well, I think we also got to talk a lot about feeling and a lot about the history. And so if you include the history and sort of pick pieces that talk, depict the history some of the scales and all that stuff is not about culture. That's just jazz. See, I'm from the Detroit tradition where we play by ear, but we also learn scales and theory. So I don't believe that you can be a great improviser and not learn your scales and not learn theory. So you got to do both. So you got to learn by ear because that's tradition of the church. And a lot of African-American musicians, we play by ear because we didn't learn how to read music early in our history because it was a literacy issue and we weren't allowed to read. And it wasn't until New Orleans that musicians really started developing the reading craft because the Creole musicians would teach African-Americans. 
right? So that's something to think about. So you want to marry the tradition of the ear and learning how to read and interpret. And all of those things are important, but swinging and playing the blues is really the intrinsic part of what makes jazz jazz. And so sometimes people don't want to change their understanding of music because most of us don't want to do something we don't know anything about that we're not the expert on. And so we run away from baby blues and swing a lot. And there's blues in the rhythm and there's rhythm in the swing. It's all a part of the same thing. Get the students to learn as much by ear. Add that as a component. Learn a lot of history and learn a lot of songs by ear. I would say it's the oral tradition of jazz, and it will change your program. I'd, I'd like to say that these are some really great questions that we're having coming in from Facebook Live. So if you have questions, please post them in the chat. We'd love, we'd love to bring them up. Kind of back on the topic of the protest music, one of the tracks that you sent us is I Wish I Knew What It Meant to Be Free. Can you talk about that track a little bit before we yes. go into that? Sure. This was a song that was originally written by Dr. Billy Taylor and right after the March on Washington. And Dr. Billy Taylor, the jazz, great jazz pianist, and Martin Luther King were really good friends. They were best friends. In fact, so a lot of times Dr. Billy Taylor would play rallies with his trio for Martin Luther King. And he would often turn to Billy Taylor and say, Dr. Taylor, can you play me that old Baptist hymn that you wrote? And so he would go into it. And King, again, King was a big jazz fan. A lot of people don't realize that he loved Basie. There's a great photo of him meeting uh, his hero, Duke Ellington. And I think Duke is still in his role because they told him that Martin Luther King wanted to meet him and he wasn't dressed. So he came down in his robe to meet Martin Luther King in the lobby of the hotel. The lyrics were written early on as well, but Nina Simone did the definitive version of this song. And she was known to do protest songs. But uh, this is my favorite Nina Simone tune that she recorded. I wish I knew what it means to be free. Green. 
few anthems, uh, if you count Lift Every Voice and Sing, uh, We Shall Overcome in jazz music. Can we talk a little bit about how the anthem started, what the point of the anthems was, and what they're supposed to represent? Sure, I mean, in the African-American tradition, anthems began from hymns because we weren't allowed to sing songs from the motherland. And our, our ideal of worship came out of our traditions, but we hid them in the Christian church. And so we started to create things like wade in the water. The water in, in Yoruba and West African culture signifies purifying things. And that always exists in every religion. Also, the water is how food source and how things travel. There's always stories in our folklore about growing up along the riverbanks, whether it's the Mississippi. Langston Hughes wrote a poem called The Negroes Known Rivers. The significance of water is always prominent. I'm sidetracked. So these songs are songs are what we call, I learned to know as songs of volition. And these are the things that encourage us to live and to go on and to let us know that we're human. Over time, we've adapted songs that were from other traditions and cultures and made them our song. I didn't know We Shall Overcome wasn't written by African-American, but it was adapted as a song for the civil rights movement. And so these are songs of volition. These are the things that give us our humanity and let us have the will to go on. And so that's how these anthems really sort of started. Uh, James Brown had a prominent one say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And that song meant a lot if you were a black kid growing up in the ghettos of the North or in the South, in the Deep South. Because before that, we didn't have a lot of pride in being black. We didn't see images of ourselves in the history books. We'd turn on the TV and everybody on TV was white. Do y'all realize that the real first all black television show was Sanford and Son? Good times. Before those shows, Bill Cosby had a show in the 60s he was the only black character on the show. That's something to think about as we think about culture. You don't see yourself. It's back to windows and mirrors. You don't see yourself. You don't value yourself. You don't see the beauty in yourself. We've got another live stream question here from Walter Cano. He says, how important is programming for high school programs? How can we influence middle and high school educators to pick selections that teach more of the history? It's sort of changing in a way because when I was a kid growing up, there was hardly any bands playing like Basin's music at all. And they really didn't play Duke Ellington at all. Some of that is starting to change and we really have to influence the band and orchestra associations across the, the country because they're the folks that really like influence the repertoire, especially at the middle school level and the high school level. And a lot of the charts that they play that come off of a list of tunes as professional musicians and educators, first of all, we have to care enough to take those meetings or try to encourage the band and orchestra association to make different choices. I won't use the word better because we have to also change how pedagogy is taught at the collegiate level. A lot of times directors are directing jazz band and they haven't had any jazz experience. So a lot of the charts that they're playing were written because of that for people who don't know a lot about jazz and that they can teach this music without really knowing anything about jazz. So now we have to change that narrative at the collegiate level. Everyone that's going to be a music educator should play jazz all four years of college. Every university should have at least six, seven jazz orchestras because it doesn't make sense if you're going to be a music educator that you don't study jazz. And the first thing that happens when you walk in a band room, you got the jazz band. 
and you don't have any experience. See, we didn't really care about this 30, 40 years ago. We just criticized everybody without doing anything about it. And so now we have to change that narrative. We have to go meet with the band and orchestra associations as we travel, find out who the influential people, people like NAFBE. And Jazz at Lincoln Center is doing a lot of that work with repertoire, but they shouldn't be the only one. We all should be taking on ourselves and we should be writing charts. For those of us who are arrangers, should be writing charts that are good quality charts that swing for middle school. Cause that's really, the, that's where I started playing. I was 13, but we were playing Charlie Parker and we were playing, you know, we were swinging. You know, I was wearing the berets and trying to be cool as a jazz musician at 13. I was getting the real deal. So we have to change the narrative. The person who asked the question is quite a good arranger too, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you got to write some middle school charts and give them away for free in the beginning. Can you talk a little bit more about swing, what you mean when you're saying that it just needs to be swinging? All music has a pocket you know, which means it makes you want to dance. And there's a something in the rhythm that you have to do to make it dance, whether it's an accent. And within that, there's also feeling of the blues that exist in the rhythm too. But what has happened over time, sometimes people can't swing. So then they make that aesthetic, they can't dance. So they make the dance quality of the rhythm not important. So they play the rhythms and they play the things without they can dance. I'm counting the tempo off and I look at Gina, she's like already dancing. But if you're not dancing when you play, it's not gonna swing. What we do a lot of times is we make whatever it is that we are, we turn it, the music into that instead of embracing the music and learning how to dance and learning how to swing. I remember I did this interview with Jazz Hot Magazine in Paris when I played with Roy Hargrove. And I was a young guy, I was like 24 years old. And the French journalist asked me, he said, what's most important? Is it rhythm or harmony in jazz? I said, wow, that's a heavy question. So I thought about it for a while and I said, it's rhythm. He said, why do you say that? I said, because without the rhythm, it ain't jazz. Without the rhythm, it's everything else. What does he mean? Coltrane was harmonic. I said, but if he didn't have good rhythm, <laughs> you wouldn't be talking about Coltrane. <laughs> well, Delonious Monk was harmonic. I said, but I heard his rhythm first because we we're all drummers first. Right? So we play percussively like a drummer, like Louis Armstrong talks, like Max tells us all the time. Think Louis Armstrong is telling us to dance. Louis Armstrong was one of the best dancers in New York. Ella Fitzgerald was, Dizzy Gillespie was. And so when you think about this idea about rhythm, what he was actually asking me was the African influence or the European influence was the most important. And so that's what we're always constantly battling in jazz. People don't want to like learn the tradition and the culture. And that doesn't mean that that's where you settle. That's where you start. You start with something, you learn what it's about, and then you innovate. But if you don't really have anything in your background, it's hard to innovate. And plus you realize when you really learn how to play and you become a student of music, there ain't really that much you're going to do that somebody haven't already tried. People have been playing out since the 50s, really in the 40s. People have been playing odd meters since the 50s. So learn how to swing. <laughs> learn how to swing. When I was a kid, if you couldn't swing and you couldn't play blues, you wouldn't a jazz musician. That's still my standard. Something that you mentioned a little bit about, you know, a lot of times as musicians, we project ourselves onto existing music. 
And I think that might extend even to a greater bubble. As humans, we tend to project ourselves onto others and onto other you know, music cultures and even as an educator, as students. Can you talk about the concept? You talked about this when we were at school, but you talked about the concept of meeting students, the music, everything, where they're at. So I'm meeting in the middle. I've had experiences where I've gone to schools and they're playing music that's way above the head of the student. They're in middle school and they're trying to play like a 7-4 chart, giant steps in 7-4 or something like that. And the kids can't even play like a blues. And they're playing tunes with difficult changes. And the number one thing it says in the conducting book is conduct the band that's in front of you, not the one that's in your head. Should I say that again? One yeah. more time for the people in the back. Conduct the band that's in front of you, not the one that's in your head. When I first started teaching and directing a jazz band, I was in a Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. And I would get frustrated because the band didn't sound like the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. And that's an impossible standard for me to have a, for my college band, my collegiate band. And every time I did a workshop the first couple of years, like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You got to phrase it like Wycliffe Gordon or you, Wes Anderson would do this. And it would just frustrate people. So I would use recordings more. I would play it so that they heard it in the workshop. And I learned how to use words more to teach. I learned actually how to teach and to use words and to encourage people. And when they do well, to encourage them and to push them, always push them a little more to give a little more than what they got. I hope I'm answering your question, but I think it's important that you got to push the student a little bit, but you also have to celebrate their successes because the students are harder on themselves than anybody. You have to have affirmation that you're doing a good job. I always had good people that encouraged you. They were tough on you, but they always encouraged you. I used to play with Donald Walden, uh, the great saxophonist who taught at Oberlin and University of Michigan and mentored to so many players from Detroit. I was playing with him when I was 18. He said, walk a solo. So we're playing like a bug pile tune called Web City and it's rhythm changes and it goes to E flat seven in the bridge, some alternate changes in the bridge. I walked two courses and I was going to stop. He said, walk another one. I get to the last eight, walk another one. And that went on for like, you know, 20 minutes. That was a compliment. That means like you worked on the things that I told you to work on and you sound good. So he encouraged me. But if you didn't know the changes to a tune and you've been playing it more than twice, you would get cussed out. We don't cuss students out anymore. <laughs> but I got cussed out on a lot of bandstands when I was a kid. But it made me tough. It made me learn, you know. And I don't advocate doing that at all. I think you got to teach by encouragement. But that was their way, you know. How do you balance this support, but then also, because not every student is going to be really hardworking. How do you balance, like, a support and knowing when to push or how to push a student? My motto is progress over perfection. And to say that it's about getting work done every week. So everybody learns at a different pace. Everybody has different goals. Some people will do this professionally, some people won't. But if they're making progress every week, then I'm encouraged. You know, sometimes I have a course pack that's lined up in the curriculum. And sometimes it's bad because people look at that and they think they're not doing well for me, but they are but they're learning at their pace. I had somebody who completed my course pack, which is designed for six years and two years, but they could play all the stuff fast, but they couldn't really play it. So I made them go back for the next two years and learn all the stuff again. And they thank me for it. I also look at it holistically 
and I'm always trying to become a better teacher and understand how the brain works. Remember in Latin, RX, y'all know what that stands for? At a drugstore, it means recipe. So that when you got a prescription in ancient days, you told the person what was wrong with you and they would mix up herbs. You remember the mortar and the pestle is the symbol for prescription. So they would mix up your herbs or your tea and crunch it up and give you your prescription. And everybody had a different prescription. Sometimes people come in, they study with you and somebody taught them how to play the instrument really well. So now you got to teach them how to hear and you don't really have to focus on technique as much. You still got to encourage them to keep their chops and keep growing. But maybe you got a student who could play everything by ear. I keep doing trombone because I'm talking to trombone. <laughs> so you have people who got a good ear, but they never really like learn how to play the trombone. So that student for four years really need to learn how to play the instrument. Because if you can't play the trombone, you're not going to be able to play all the stuff that you hear, right? So you got to spend time working on the slide technique, scales, air control, all those things. And I'm also like a student of other instruments, although I only really play bass. I'm always asking pedagogues of that instrument questions about how they teach and what do they focus on because there are some similar things with the bass and the trombone because you guys think in partials. And our instrument is really set up a similar way. I used to ask Wycliffe a lot. I asked Michael Dees a lot about how you teach trombone and what are the things that you're thinking about. Or I'm asking Diego about saxophone, or Xavier about piano, and Randy about guitar, or Etienne about the trumpet, and Uncle G about drums. Because I want to know, because I may have to think differently for every student. I'm curious what you think makes a well-rounded musician. Well, I really think now a well-rounded musician can play. That's the number one thing. Is you can really perform at the high level. That you can also teach and communicate in that aspect. You're an entrepreneur, you understand social media, you're out to create opportunities for yourself and you're optimistic because if you get inside your head and your mind, then not much is gonna happen. If you focus your energy on creating and being creative, things will happen for you. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. A question on stream from Brandon Bryant. He says, what books would you recommend to read to get a better understanding of jazz history? Well, the first book I would read is a book called Jazz, The First 100 Years. I use that in my styles analysis class. It's out of print. It's compiled and written by Dr. John Hossie from the Smithsonian. And this book is really comprehensive. It looks like a website, lots of pictures in it which I think the photographs tell stories as well. So that book is the number one one that I would read. And from there, you can go jazz the first century. The Ken Burns jazz, some people don't like that book, but there's more information that wasn't in the film. I think that's written by Jeffrey Ward, the great historian and a good friend of mine. So there's tons of books. Once you start, it's hard to stop. And then, you know, there's all the famous ones written by people like Gunther Schuller. Some of those books I don't really like. Some of the books teeter on being racist. But I think it's also good to read that and read the truth and see what perspective you come up with after reading the book. And also things have changed since those books were written. We got a couple more tracks here that we'd love to talk about on the stream. And the first one is uh, Nancy Wilson's Please Send Me Someone to Love. Do you mind oh, talking yeah. a little bit? Well, this tune was originally is written by Percy Mayfield. And Percy Mayfield is R&B, rhythm and blues singer. And he was called the jazz poet because he knew how to write lyrics. He was a great lyricist, amazing singer. 
And Nancy Wilson, I think, did this tune the best because it's a double entendre. The song sounds like a love song, but it's not a love song. That's all I'll say. And Nancy can sing anything. Let's take a listen. Heaven, please send to all. understanding and peace of mind and if it's not asking too much please send me someone's love show the When hate is gone And if it's not asking too much Please send me someone to love I lay awake nights And ponder a world of trouble Is there a way to put the lyrics back up? Mm -hmm. Okay, so heaven please send to all mankind understanding and peace of mind. But if it's not asking too much, please send me someone to love. So even, even right out of the gate, it's talking about peace and humanity. But the trick of it is when she says, send me someone to love, it sounds like a love song. Show all the world how to get along. Peace will enter when hate is gone. But if it's not asking too much, please send me someone to love. I lay a white wake night pondering the world's troubles already, right? My answer is always the same, that unless men put an end to all of this, hate will put the world in a flame. Just because I'm in misery, what a shame. Just because I'm in misery, I'm not begging for no sympathy, but if it ain't asking too much, please send me someone to love. 
And the fact that we think it's a love song means that Nancy is doing her job. And Percy got away with writing a lot of songs like this because they thought they were love songs. But he was writing songs about humanity and human rights. And that's why they call him the jazz poet. What do you think we can do as a community to show each other more love? I think we got to listen. I think the, the biggest thing that we struggle with as human beings is we all want to be right and we don't listen. I think I've become a better listener. That's what I'm working on, you know, because also, too, I remember when I always was talking, people pay me to talk. People bribe me to do lectures and things, but I'm often more interested in hearing what other people have to say because I don't want to miss anything. And sometimes when I'm talking all the time, I miss something. You remember anytime I'm talking to you all, I listen to you too. And I say to you, what did you say? If I miss something, I, well, say that again. Cause I don't really want to miss anything. And everybody has wisdom. People understand, have experiences that you haven't had. We can learn from everybody. I got an 11 year old kid who teaches me every day. And it's funny. So the next book, Abby Lincoln and Max Roach. Mandacity. Can you talk a little bit about that before we just play it for everybody? This song was written by Max in 1962, coming off the heels of his uh, Freedom Now Suite. If you can find this downbeat article, Race and Prejudice in Jazz, and there's a heated discussion about Jim Crow in jazz with Max, Don Ellis, Abby Lincoln, Lilo Schifrin, Isla Gibbon, Nate Hintoff. And it's pretty contentious if you can find this. And so he wrote this coming off the heels of writing the Freedom Now Suite in 1959, debuted in 60, about the end of colonial rule and apartheid in South Africa and slavery in America. He was sort of blacklisted and vilified, he and both Abby Lincoln, but he still kept recording and making a political statement. And this is one from 62 from the recording Percussion Bittersweet. And this song is called Mendacity. And what it's about it's untruths, how politicians make a speech and never hear the sound. I didn't pick, pick, pick this for any particular reason. Okay, let's take a listen. Politician makes a speech and never hears the sound. The campaign trail winds on and on in towns from coast to coast. The winner ain't the one who's straight, but he who
would if I tried in certain states. From treetops, I'd be tied. Mendacity, mendacity, it seems is everywhere. But try and tell the truth. And most folks scream, not fair. That was heavy. I feel like we could have a whole stream just about that one song. Israel. Now voting rights in this fair land we know are not denied. But if I tried in certain states from treetops, I'd be tied. You talked about that a little bit earlier about how slavery didn't actually really stop until a hundred years after it stopped. When you have the right to vote, you can affect things if you actually vote. If you actually vote, usually you can't throw your vote away. You can't write in Harambe the gorilla. You gotta vote. You gotta make a choice. Because if you don't vote, you vote for the other person. That's and, so uh, true today, even. Everybody should vote. We have one last track, Alabama. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, in 1963, as we were coming up to the March on Washington, there was those in the country who didn't want it to happen and people who tried to, you know, corrupt it or coerce it or influence what would happen, whether people would go or not, decided to put a bomb in a church in Alabama. And four black girls were killed. The eulogy was given by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. John Coltrane heard this eulogy, and he grew up in the African Methodist church, which has a tradition of lining a hymn or lining a text. So they would take the words from the Bible, and someone who could line a hymn would just improvise a melody based on what the text said. The choir would then do call and response on this lining a hymn. And Coltrane grew up at, in that tradition. Tradition. It is said that the melody to Alabama is based on Martin Luther King's speech. Let's listen to Alabama. <laughs>
say thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on the show i know for me personally every opportunity i get to speak with you i'm always learning i'm always like gaining new inspiration and just it's always just an amazing experience getting to talk and speak with you professor whitaker so thank you so much for being on thank you i appreciate y'all having me and i'm so proud of you too keep up the good work Thank you for being so generous with your time as well and sharing it with all of us and everybody that's watching via Facebook, via YouTube, and everybody who came along as well. Is there anything you want to say before we sign off? I think we all got to figure out how to protest in our own way for things to change. We're all not free until we're all free. Remember that. One more thanks to you, Prof. Yes. We'll see everyone else next time. Bye, guys.